So, uh, welcome to another episode of Let Me Say This. I'm your host, Tony Kristen Walker, and today I have my good friend, my little brother, my pastor, Mr. Reverend Dr. David Barnhart Jr. What's up, Dave? Hey, all kinds of stuff. Oh, nothing, nothing at all. Nothing's going on at all. <laughs> you know, that's a, running, that's a running joke. Now, what you got to do? Oh, oh nothing. Jeez. Nothing at all. I know. <laughs> so, uh, how's your week, man? It's been good. Uh, you know, managed to spend some time outside. Although the last two days was so it was like February, so it was kind of crazy. Um, but you know, we've been doing housework, yard work. Um, I've gotten some writing done, which has been been good. Um, it's weird because it's kind of like things are both slower and faster at the same time. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's kind of like everybody's kind of restless. I was talking to a friend of mine a couple of weeks ago. He was like. You know, I'm just tired. He had to realize, well, I'm not really tired. I'm just restless because there's so much time that you don't really have, that you don't have to make use of. So it just kind of like sits there. And so it makes mm-hmm. it harder to get motivated to do things because normally we're used to things to having a deadline. And although there are, there are still things that do have a deadline, like most of the things we do now don't. You know, like what are you going to yeah. do? You know, so there's that. Well, it's, you know, it's like someone made the distinction between the important and the urgent. And so, you know, trying to focus on the things that are important instead of urgent right. is, I think, I think a lot of us are kind of trying to live in that shift right now. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. I'm going to try one other thing before we really get started. Can you still mm-hmm. hear me? Can you still hear me? I no. can't hear you right now. Okay, cool. I'm trying to figure out how the sound is working. It's a long story. But anyway, so uh, today <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about uh, one of the one of the new current events that we are experiencing. Uh, and because of COVID-19, I think this has just been like buried, you know, under the slush of everything that's COVID-19. I made a comment a couple of months ago that, you know, if you're going to be almost the governor of Florida and get caught doing crack in a hotel, this is the perfect time to do it because we're not talking about any other news that will normally bump right. it up. <clears throat> like, they talk, we talked about Andrew Gillum about maybe a day, and then it was gone. Everything else was COVID-19, COVID-19. And this particular mm-hmm. story has not had any legs whatsoever. And every day there's something that really repulses me even more about this particular story. So, of course, we're talking about the murder of uh, Ahmad Arbery, which is just another tragic black spot, you know, in, in our in our collective history of this shitty country that we live in. And I, so I kind of want to kind of unpack some things for that. And, you know, in order for me to talk about racism, I feel like I always need to have a white person who gets it to talk to. <laughs> because, you know, a lot of your cousins and neighbors don't, don't listen to us because it's just all in our minds. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they may have thrown you over to our neck of the woods and given you a temporary black card right now at this point. But, I mean, you know, it's just it's that these are just things that need to be said. So, for those of you who have not heard, there was a 20, how was he, 22? 20, 20 I, I can't remember if it's 22 or 23, 25, something like that. Another young black man who gets gunned down by two white men on the truck just jogging. And so there are a lot of things that bother me about this, the way that people have tried to, like, add context to it, mainly white people. You know, it's like, well, they said that he matched the description of a burglar. Well, there was, like, one report of a burglar in that whole area since this whole year. So it's not like there was a series Mm -hmm. of it. You know, and I think the thing that bothers me most is 
there are white people going, well, you know, had he just stopped. Why the hell do he did, did he have to stop for Why? some random ass white people he don't even know? Right. Exactly. I mean, it's yeah. it's, it's ridiculous, and it and it and it and it pisses me off that every time something happens to black people that is done by white people, it's always what could they have done to not get killed by us? And, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, what could he have done to not get killed by them? And then there's also the racist trope of black-on-black crime. Well, they don't say that when they kill each other. These things are not the same. They are not correlated right. whatsoever. So tell me a little bit about, you know, when, how you felt when you first heard about this. Jeez. Um, well, first, I didn't know if I wanted to. I was very reluctant to watch the video, um, especially because I, I, there's a voyeurism sense that comes along with this stuff. And it's hard to know, like, should I watch or should I not watch? What would be the best thing to do? Right. Um, and uh, I decided to that I needed to see it um, because, you know, pe- people see it and they are traumatized by it. And I, it is uh, it was horrific. Um and I, I, know, I hate relating this to pop culture, but have you seen the movie American History X by any chance? No, no, sure. Um, so it's a, um, it's about a, no, it's the main character is a neo-Nazi, and he he kills two uh, black guys who are breaking into his car, and he goes to jail, and it's about kind of how he has a change of heart, etc. Very powerful movie, um, really addresses racism, and, and even like with the notion that you can do, you can do the best work you can, but there's a cycle of violence that perpetuates itself. Um, and you know, this, this heartwarming story isn't enough right. to it's, and it's not really heartwarming. It's really pretty horrific. Um, again, traumatic movie, hard to watch. Um, but I don't care what the hell the young man did or didn't do. It is completely irrelevant. I mean, if he's, if he's committing a property crime, so what, I mean, what, why, why does someone need to die over that? And, and it's, since it's, it's come out since then, you're talking about some of the things not adding up. Um, some of the stuff that I've read, and again, it's hard, I, I don't have, I'm not going to be able to cite it because it's in my head, um, indicates that this guy who was an ex-cop may have known the person he killed from before. So he may have like, done an investigation, there were some problems way back when, and it was, kind of, it was so clearly a lynching. It was so clearly vigilante justice. Um, I don't even like saying justice is a vigilanteism, right? You know, uh, but in in these white guys' minds, they are the heroes. Oh, we're going to go protect our neighborhood, or we're going to, you know, this is what's in their head. And I think for a lot of a lot of white folks who are, I mean, look, we're we're raised on these videos of of heroic uh, people defending their families or communities or whatever, and it's always redemptive violence. It's always about using violence. Um, that's the, the the whole premise is wrong. It's like there's nothing. Even if he was in your house and running down the street with a with a TV that he took out of your house, you don't have a right to kill him. Right. We have due process not, for a reason. Yeah. And, well, and and the thing that the thing that gets me is I think for what I usually like to say when when I say that I'm against capital punishment, some people say, "What if someone did something to your family?" And um, and I have to acknowledge, yeah, if someone did something to my family, um, I could be outraged. I could, I wouldn't want someone to be executed. I would want, you know, 48 hours alone with them in a box of hand tools. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's because I'm a, I'm a mean guy, but that's why we have laws. Right. It's to protect other people from me. 
you know? And I think for a lot of white people, that doesn't get to their heads. Like these laws that, that we say we believe in should protect, that should give due process to people because you could be the bad guy. I mean, you could be the vigilante. Um, and I, I think that, uh, that just, I'm sorry, I've started ranting and preaching. So I'm going to stop. But that's my... <laughs> No, but that I mean, was my gut reaction. But you know, it goes back to you know we have, and again, I, I really hate like the majority of the people who are like standing for these guys right now are white Republican men in their in their consulate. Oh, absolutely. And the thing that bothers me about that is there are two tropes that they keep using about being the party of God and being the party of of law of the land. You like justice? Like this ain't justice. Like none of this, none of this is justified. And, you know, for them to continue to say that, you know, well, he did this when he was in high school. So fucking what? Like, who gives a shit? Like, I just don't understand why every time someone black gets accused of a crime or is arrested or just accused of a crime, it's like, well, he did this back in 1984. He did this in 92. He did this in 2011. So he's a bad guy. And I keep talking about this. They literally caught a white boy raping a girl behind a fucking dumpster, and was like, "Well, let's not put him in jail because this may ruin the rest of his life." What the fuck? Like, where where right, are we? Right, right. And for people who say, "Well, you know, um, I wouldn't call that racist." Well, what the hell else do you call it? Like, what else would you call mm-hmm. that? For for white people to yeah. literally get away scot free with stuff, and you know, black people get killed for minor incidences. You know, and it, and it's and it's ridiculous that they. And I think that's because so many people have problems with religion today, too. Because if this is what, mm-hmm. when you look at those pages that were set up for them, you know, it started out, these are two God-fearing men. What God are you fearing, bro? Which God, what God are you that's talking right. about? You know, and it's just kind of like, it, 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 it blurries everybody else's witness. You know, when you think about mm-hmm. whatever your religious denomination is, you know, it if if these people represent what your God is about, it really blurs the witness of the entire religion, and people don't quite get that. You know, like when you mm-hmm. when you see stuff like that, and they put God in front. What 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 what, what do you think about that? Oh my gosh! Well, yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. What you said. What what God? <laughs> you know, which God are you talking about? This is not, it's not a God that I would want to you know be with, right? Not at all. Like if that's what it means to be God fearing, then I want nothing to do with your religion. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, 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 go ahead, no, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, this is, you know, I've shared before that, um, uh, white evangelicalism, um, and, and, and I, here's the thing that hurts me is that I consider myself evangelical. (laughs) Evangelical means you want people to know about Jesus. That's all it means, Right. right? I want, I want other people to know, uh, this good news. That's what evangelism means. I want people to know this good news that, that I, that gives me such joy. Um, but what, what has come to mean is a particular ideology, particular set of conservative beliefs. Um, when you, when they do polls of white evangelicals, um, most believe that growing diversity is a bad thing. Right. I mean, in America, and that's, you know, knowing that in 2050, white people are going to become a minority. That's, that's where a lot of this anxiety is coming from. And, you know, it's just, it's not holy. It is unholy, you know? You know, I'm going I'm to put, you know, I've done a little research. They're not going to be a super majority anymore. They're still going to be a majority. They just won't be the well, super majority. And, and I think language language like that scares the shit out of them. Like, it really, like, just yeah. makes them crap their pants. But, you know, it wouldn't, so it, maybe they're like red states and blue state evangelicals. 
<laughs> because I know that the Christians who are in blue states don't worship the same way Christians do in red states. Like, uh, it, it, again, it's always the antithesis of what God says that these people hold on to, and then they get to be thought of as the great religion just because they don't like gays. You know, and it's like, what the hell? What the hell? Yeah. And, and I, I would say I think one of the things that is important, and and this I, this morning I preached about this. I feel like um, part of the part of the duty of those of us who do consider ourselves Christians um, is is to find ways, points of common ground with people that we radically disagree with about some things. But like there are there's some Republicans that recognize um, that systemic racism is an issue. There there's some uh, conservatives. Uh, religious people who who are deeply grieved uh, about the about structures of and structural racism and systemic racism, and and try very hard. I mean, work very hard to address it. So I, I mean, I have to give credit where credit is due. It's just that they're a minority. You right. know? It's like there's twenty, maybe twenty percent. And I think uh, you know what I what I want to do is I want to find places where I agree with those folks. Um, because I think there's there are some specific uh, there's some specific policies and specific things that that we could uh, be together on if our if our what we say our faith is was more important than white supremacy. Would you, would know? you, would you mind if talking Jesus, about those? Talk about those like you did this morning in church. I, I thought I thought that was very interesting. The three oh, yeah. pillars you talked about. Right. Well, I see. I think in churches a lot of times we we spend a lot of time talking about spiritual things and. The thing is, with systemic racism, if we're going to address this stuff, we have to address the material conditions that people live under. Because it's uh, systemic racism is expressed in things like poverty, incarceration, uh, voter voter disenfranchisement. So bodies, bucks, and ballots is is a way that we talk about in in, in community organizing. And so for bodies, I think, you know, the first thing we have to do, the one policy issue that I think even a lot of Republicans agree with is we have to end the war on drugs. The war on drugs has been an unmitigated disaster. It doesn't mean we legalize it. doesn't mean we put dispensaries next to schools and all that stuff. It just means you know, we need to make drug, uh, drug prosecution at least lowest priority for law enforcement. But we need to end the war on drugs because that has driven the mass incarceration problem. We saw it start in the 70s. You see this massive graph of, of how incarceration has gone up and up and up and up. Uh, since then, we incarcerate more people than anyone else in the world. Republicans know this, right? The people who are putting together state budgets know we're spending thirty thousand dollars a year warehousing people in prisons. Right. And it, you know, because we don't want to give away something for free. Like we could give away drug treatment to folks, and it's not that it's not that black folk commit more crimes. It's that I mean, black and white people use drugs at the same rate. It's just that we, for marijuana possession in Alabama, we know. Black people are four times more likely to go to prison than white folks. Right, because, because we're over, we're over policed. We're over policed, and and yes. that's and that's that's something we think about like legal aspects of like drug enforcement and other things. People say, well, they shouldn't have had them. Well, my whole thing is white people have them too. Y'all just not looking at them. Like you're not looking at them. Hundred percent. Yeah. yeah, but that's yeah, a good absolutely. point. Well, and then so like a, a kid, uh, a young young man, will say gets gets. Uh, for this and it puts him on a path where he now is going to have repeated encounters with law enforcement until you know, what he, what can he do he's going to wind up in jail you know right. it's, and it's almost fatalistic right so we need to end the war on drugs to get people off that path and we need to treat drug addiction 
as a as a mental health issue. We need if if the difference is between paying thirty grand to warehouse someone or paying three grand, two or two, three or four grand for a drug treatment program, which is cheaper. Right. <laughs> you right. Know? And so this is something I mean, that's the kind of language you have to use with uh, with conservatives. So that's bodies. Um, Ballots, voter disenfranchisement. So I know that right now the big thing is vote by mail. A lot of Republicans are opposed to vote by mail. They've been pushing, you know, they've been pushing this narrative of voter fraud ever since Barack Obama got elected. Um, and we know it's racist, but but we have to find ways to talk to white people about it so that they understand. Look, this is about your grandma who has mobility issues. She can't vote either, right? right? And and one of the big things that gets me about this is especially our. Secretary of State John Merrill, who's an arrogant jerk. Um, when he's, yeah, when someone says, "Well, so how do I get a voter? If I'm, how do I do voter ID if I if I do an absentee ballot? Like, and I don't have access to a photocopier?" He's like, "Well, let me, I'll come to your house and show you how to use a scanner or whatever." There's so much privilege packed into that, right? I mean, if someone is, if someone's older and they have mobility issues, they're not, they don't know how to go get something photocopied, right? And there's ableism, so it's ableism, it's racism, it's everything else. But you have to talk about it, what I was saying to white folks, is you have to talk about it to conservatives in a way that they'll understand. So what do we need to do to make sure that that everyone has, everyone's vote gets counted? Because that's, you know, you have to, you have to frame it in a way that they'll, they'll agree. So uh, uh, war on drugs, uh, voter disenfranchisement, and the last one is um, the baby bonds thing. So the financial piece. Um, Cory Booker has this plan for, um, or, or made this, and it's not his policy. Other people have suggested it, but he, he popularized it, um, which is that every every child that's born gets a trust fund. So right as soon as they're born, they get a $2,000 trust fund, and then the government continues to pay into that until they're 20 or something like that. And when they turn 20, suddenly you got a pot of money that could change that can change generational poverty right there. Boom. And and as as a kid, you know, they're or as a as a teenager, they're being taught, hopefully, like when you turn twenty, you're gonna get this pot of money. You can use this to go to college, you can use it to start a business, you can you know, it's a it's a nest egg. Right. What if everyone started with a nest egg? And it's not just because rich people rich people give their kids nest eggs, right? And that's part of what perpetuates generational poverty. So like bodies, ballots and bucks, if if those, those are three. I like it because it's three. It's easy to remember. Concrete policies uh, that address racism. Now, it doesn't stop uh, vigilantes from killing black right. folks. I mean, that's that's a separate issue. But part of it is uh, it's empowering. It's changing the narrative. It's it's um, you know helping people um, uh, helping people to succeed in life. Anyway, I just I think. I mean, we, we know people who lynch are evil people, right? but that's just the, that's just the tip of the iceberg of the systemic race, race issue. I'll tell you so, what, well, we got the tip of it. I want to, I want to delve a little deeper once we uh, finish our break. So I'm going to put this on pause for a second. Do you have an active sex life? PrEP is a once-a-day pill that prevents HIV and is now available at the Livewell PrEP Clinic on the south side of the hub. PrEP is safe for men and women who have active sex lives and want to decrease their chances of contracting HIV. For more information about PrEP and the Livewell PrEP Clinic, call 205-324-9822 or go to www.gcdm.com and click on appointments. Or if you just need to get tested, call us. 
So we are back. I think I'm still recording. Yes, it says recording. Uh, you know, we're going to do a lot of stuff during this COVID-19 era. I mean, the age oh, of man. COVID. It's like drinking from a fire hose from technology, man. It's like I have to learn all these things, right? Right. So so, so before the break, we, um, we, we talked about, like, what racism looks like, how, you know, it affects people and – you know, how it's implemented. I kind of want to talk a little bit about how, you know, increasing people's knowledge and awareness and just understanding about racism can kind of help us alleviate further incidences like Tamir Rice or Ahmad uh, Arbery or, you know, um, um, the oh, uh, Philando Castile. Like, like, you know, yeah. like, like, we know that they were killed because people viewed them through a racist lens. But I think, and not all, but I think a lot of white people are like unaware of their, you know, their 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 racist bias and and how they compartmentalize things. Like, how how do we figure out how to get everybody outraged about the shooting of unarmed black men? Like everybody was outraged about the bombing of the Twin Towers or the Oklahoma City bombing or even the the, the Olympic bombing in in Atlanta. We don't find a lot of dissension between those events. No, no, I, I don't know anybody. Well, you know, the Twin Towers that wasn't all that big of a thing, or you know, buildings blow up all the time. You know, screw the Olympics. So you know, but when yeah. we hear a young black man being killed, gunned down by non non official white people. Then there becomes a, hmm, how do I feel about that? You know, so, like, how do we get people to, or is there any help for those people? Like, what what do you think about that? Yeah, I, th- I think it's a tough question because you're asking about empathy, right? I mean, how do I get people to empathize um, when they have been trained to empathize with the wrong person, right? True. I mean, I think a lot of white people are empathizing with the guys with guns, honestly, uh, it's like, well, it's, it's an honest mistake, <laughs> you know, and they're not seeing it. They're not seeing this through, through the same horror lens thinking that could be me or that could be my friend or that could be my child. Um, they're thinking, like, if, if I'm inserting myself in this narrative, where am I? I'm a guy in the truck for a lot of white folks. Um, you know, there was I, there was on social media just earlier. There was a guy saying, you know, look, I'm not I'm not blaming the victim, but. Right. And then he, and then he goes on to say, you know, talk about, you know, he was, he had looked in a, in a, a he was on private property or was looking at a house that was under construction. I thought, what, what the heck? Like, where does that come from? Right. So I think, go ahead. I, I, that's, that's, no, go ahead and finish. Cause I, I got two incidences I want to tell you about and tell you how black people react to shit differently than white people. Keep going, keep going. Oh yeah. So and I, not to, not to make this too, um, it was going to sound trite, but it's a little bit like, so I'm a cyclist, right? I ride on bicycles in the traffic and cars are supposed to have all, I mean, bikes are supposed to have all the rights the cars do. You're supposed to treat a bike like a car, give them three feet when you pass, all that kind of stuff. And it usually doesn't happen. So when, when a cyclist gets hit by a car, um, most often the motorist, even if they were being negligent, the motorist gets off scot-free. And that's because juries, most juries aren't cyclists. Most juries are, they, when they sympathize with someone, they sympathize with the person in the car because they think, oh, I could have run over that person. Right. That could have been me behind the wheel. And so their sympathy is with the person who has committed the crime. 
Now, I think um, it, you have a similar situation here. Honestly, I think for a lot of uh, white conservative gun owners, you know, they're thinking, oh, if, I, I mean, I've heard this rhetoric. If someone did this, I would, you know, that's why I carry a gun. I've heard people say when I, I don't go into Birmingham unless there's a gun on the passenger seat with me. Um, this is this is the way that, that, I mean, it's a fear-based mindset. And so they're thinking, I mean, their sympathy is for the shooters. Their sympathy is for the people who are um, the murderers. Um, and I don't know, honestly, how to how to change that, that empathy, except to try to engage people's imaginations. And um, maybe that's, maybe that's through friendship. Maybe that's through personal experience. Maybe, but I think, I think that's the heart piece that is so difficult, especially like you, you, you've done these surveys where most white people don't have a lot of black friends, you know, whereas most black people have at least, you know, one in one in five, one in six of their friends are white. For most white people, it's like ninety-eight percent of my friends are white. Um, and and ah, I don't. Know, I, I think I think it's a it's a powerful question. I wish I had a good answer for you, except I think the the problem is one of empathy and thinking about when I hear a story of it like this, where do I put myself? I tell you, I will tell you that movie I cited, American History X. I wish every white person had to see that. Well, maybe we I can make that happen. Movies, I would say. <laughs> maybe we can make that happen. Yeah. Like, you know, it's I, like required <laughs> right viewing. <laughs> you know, the one thing that 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 one of the things that you uh, said that stu- that stuck out to me was about when you're empathizing. Like, where do you put yourself? And it reminded me of this question people are asked about people who suffer from depression. So they said, like, so mm-hmm. if you're like think about somebody in a love song, are you singing the love song? Or are you listening to the love song? You know, like, mm-hmm. where where is your heart going to go? You know, usually I think yeah. I'm always the person who's singing the song, like the person who's creating it, where someone who yeah. may not be as outgoing or it may even be sad or melancholy, they are being sung too. So, like, when you think about, mm-hmm. you know, two white men shot this black boy, where are you going to empathize with the white man because you're a white man? But it's like, can we just look at people? And I hate the color, you know, I hate the colorblind trope. <laughs> But, you know, oh, yeah. we should immediately look at the person who was hurt in that situation. And, you know, and white mm-hmm. people white people don't realize how y'all move. Like, white people can just move mm-hmm. around in spaces and nobody says anything. That's how all those people got slaughtered at Mother Manual Church. You know, mm-hmm. uh, we don't, black people don't look at white, we probably should, but black people don't look at white people and go, oh, my God, there's a white person. Let me get my gun because they don't tell them what the motherfucker's going to do. You know, we don't we don't do that. Yesterday, um, when I was recording our other podcast, uh, Bobby walked outside, and it was a a family of white folks walking down that street. Don't know who they were. You know, it wasn't my business. Like I wasn't finna be Nancy. Like uh, girls, um, we got some white folks in the streets. You know what do we do? And, And white people do that to us all the fucking time. All the time. There was a there was a white woman like around the corner, and there there may be like three white families in my whole neighborhood. Uh, I, I take that back, two. Mm-hmm. One moved out, <laughs> one's still here, and one's actually a biracial couple. So these random-ass white people, I don't know where the hell they came from. There was like a homeless woman on the corner the other day. And if a black woman was in a white neighborhood, the first thing they're going to do is, hey, 
we got this black person over here. They they're endangering our lives. Right. And for you to have mm-hmm. that type of mentality is just so jacked up in so many ways, you know. And I don't. And so, like, even when it comes to figure out how do we not continue, like, just kind of like shoving the the deaths of young black men up under the the rug, like, like I don't know. It's really frustrating because I mean, I want, I like being solution oriented, but how do you find a solution for stupidity? Right. Well, and I think so. And I appreciate that question because I, I do think so. One of the other things I said this morning in in the sermon was that I think. I think white folks have to make the case to other white folks that your life is impoverished by this fear. Like your life is diminished by your, by your criminalization of young black men. You are, you are cutting yourself off from amazing relationships, from gifts, from, from living life. Like I just think about this person who said to me, like, I don't drive into Birmingham unless I have a gun on the passenger seat. Like what is What's going on in your life? Like for me, I have, I mean, I ride my bicycle at night through Birmingham. Now there are some places I'm not going to ride, but there, but generally I'm not afraid for, of the city. I mean, like what a terrible, what a terrible thing. Like I can't just walk down the street and enjoy my life. Um, the, the, the people don't understand like, like in any other area of our lives, we would say that's, that's a, that's a mental illness. That's anxiety. Like you can't, it's preventing you from living. If it's preventing you from working or having relationships, it's a mental illness. Right. So, I mean, I, I think, I think white people have to make that case right. to other white folks. Like we could have a better world. Um, and I, when I say that, it sounds so Pollyanna. I mean, it's not, <laughs> but, but it really is like this, this hurts you. And um, I think the media, so I will say, I think the media can play a role in this. Like I think about that episode of, of um, Blackish when they're talking about President Obama and so, how for so many white folks that was like scales falling from their eyes. Like, oh yeah, that's, you know, I, I had that fear, right? I mean, I was afraid he's, he's walking up there to, to be sworn in. I'm thinking, oh my God, please let him, please let him survive. For eight years, I'm thinking, please let him survive, you know? <laughs> and um, I think uh, I, I think the media, I think I think preachers, I think a lot of storytellers, art has a way of, of um, and this sounds, sounds idealistic, has a way of changing things, you know? Um, just like even though a lot of problems with it, Will and Grace, Ellen, like when it changed LGBT stuff, and you saw that happen over the course of 10, 15 years. We're in the middle of, a, a, I think, of a, a black renaissance, kind of like the Harlem Renaissance with, with the amount of culture, uh, pop culture that's, that is emerging. And, is, uh, and I do think that has an impact, but it's like 10, 15 years down the road. Down the road. I, think um, it, I think it's even further. And I think it's further because mm-hmm. of the conversation that we had about when white people see things that are not focused on them, when it's not there, when they're not the stars, they don't watch it. You remember mm-hmm. that whole CNN dais that I told you about? We had like eight people talking about the either the Mueller case or something with the with the uh, with the mm-hmm. primaries. And were eight white people up there, not a black person in sight, and that's considered normal. Because had you seen had mm-hmm. you had you or any other white person seen eight black people up there, the first thing that goes to your mind is, oh, they must be talking about racial issues because that's the only thing that we can really talk about. You know, (laughs) you know, so like, so it it goes, it goes back to, to like, you know, 
what, what what are we thinking? And in a lot of ways, and God knows, I don't want to give white people another way to get away with shit. But racism is a mental illness. It's, it's totally irrational. It's based mm-hmm. in fear, un, un, un irrational fear. You know, and and, and think about it is rich white people have been doing this to poor white people since they released the slaves. You know, the whole thing with the the proliferation of guns in this country didn't get to a fever pitch until after the slaves were released. In in their mind, their their sick way of thinking, oh, my God, we we released those slaves. They're going to do to us what we did to them. We probably should have. I ain't going to lie. Sometimes I think about it. (laughs) <laughs> but I mean, that's not how that's not how this works. That's not how that's not how that's not how we work. And it, and it's and it's one of those things of projection. You're projecting your worst mm-hmm. your worst fears, your worst senses about yourself onto other people. And honestly, the average black person see a white people, we don't even think about them. It's like okay, they must be lost, right. or sometimes I'm like somebody must be selling drugs. Like like if I if I see white people in my neighborhood, the first thing I think of. They must be lost, or they're coming here to buy drugs, <laughs> you know. And I'm like, yeah, you know, do yeah. what you do to do and leave. I'm not finna call the police because they ain't my business, you know. Why people need to mind their damn business? That's the problem. Like that man yeah. was minding his business, yeah. running down the street, and these white people decided, mm-hmm. well, you know, he may have been a burglar. And for people to, to even think about giving them a pass on that is just reprehensible. Mm-hmm. Like, like why, 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 why is that the first thing to come through your mind? It's it's ridiculous. Yeah. It's yeah. absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. But um, yeah. w- one more thing, and then we're gonna go. Um, you mentioned this this morning too, and you also made a post about that yesterday about you know if you go to a multiracial church and they're not talking about mm-hmm. racism, you know you're at a white church. <laughs> I thought that was yeah. I thought it was funny, but I think think it's also true. There are a lot of people here who go to some mega churches that are you know multiracial. And they, I don't even know if they even think about it. Like, I don't even think that, that most people think that racism and the discussion of racism has a place in the church. And it absolutely does. So how do you propose bringing those conversations into religious spaces? Yeah. So, you know, I think there, there, there are multiple ways of doing this. And I, I also have to say, um, I was talking to a friend about this um, on social media, and I, I do feel like, in a way, I'm a hypocrite for saying this because I'm part of the United Methodist Church, which has been uh, has been slow to recognize the sacredness of LGBTQIA relationships for 40, 50 years. Um, and I, I and and part of my thing has been, you know, how do I exercise my power within that institution to transform it or to? And in some ways, I did opt out. I mean, I'm not. I, I decided to start a church because there's not a, there's not a way for me to participate in the appointment system that isn't, uh, that, that is an inherently racist system. Right. So I decided I'd need to start a church, uh, to be able to, to address that. Um, and right now in my own career, I'm looking at well, how, how can I, how can I reform something or change it? If my, in, if my income is dependent on it, you know? So, um, but I think individual church people have to be held to account. Um, which is, are you, are you tithing to this institution, which does not recognize the existence of white supremacy? Um, now that's not going to convince everybody, but I do think for some people, that's one strategy. Well then go somewhere that does recognize the existence of white supremacy and is working to, to transform it. What happens is because of the way that churches are built, um, the way that they grow big, the way that they support, you know, multiple staffs 
is they don't rock the boat too much. You know, they want they want big givers. They want uh, rich people who can who will tithe and be very generous. And there are some very rich, generous rich folks that I know, by the way. So I, I'm not not bashing rich folks. I'm just saying that in an institution setting, it's like we're going to steer away from controversial subjects that might make people might rock the boat, and make people leave. Um, and so we're going to stick with spiritual things. We're not going to address. I mean, I've heard people who go to this local megachurch say the reason they go is because they don't talk about politics, right? Um, they don't realize that that is political, <laughs> you know. Um, but uh, but that's that's a big part of it. Is you know, institutions are built on stability, uh, and if you're talking about revolution, that scares some people off. Yeah, I think it's sad um, that I, th- I think it's sad that you know churches don't do more around social justice and 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 political things. I know there's a separ- separation between church and state, but when you think about the death of Jesus, it was a political. It was political, <laughs> you know. That was a political. Absolutely, that was a political act. So for churches to say, you know, we're not going to get involved in politics. You know, we don't do that. Well, what are you doing? Because the politics yeah. influences everything around us. It influences the way that you get your mail. It it influences the way you receive health care. Mm-hmm. All of this stuff, it influences even the fact whether or not a church pays taxes or not. I mean, all these things right. are are involved in our everyday living. And for people to put their heads in the sand and go, well, I just don't want to talk about that. Well, I don't, I don't want, well why don't you want to talk about it? Like, well, if you don't talk about mm-hmm. it, it's not going anywhere. So you're saying that you're okay with it staying the way that it is. Right. Can I, I will share, so there's a scripture that I, I think it's Jeremiah 27, I could be wrong, but it's, it's the seek the good of the city uh, where I have sent you. Um, God's talking to the Hebrews in exile and says, seek the good of the city where I have sent you. The word for city in Greek is polis. That's where we get politics. Mm. If you are seeking the good of the city where, where you find yourself, you have to be engaged in, in policy, same, same root word, and politics. Um, I, I think I think it's a mandate. I think you, if you are not doing that, you're not being faithful. Agreed. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's going to be it for us today. Um, I think I just kind of wanted to vent about that because it, it, it still doesn't make any sense. Uh, it's still not. And I'm really, I don't even have any faith that justice will be served in this like with any other thing. It's like, Again, let's still make an excuse for the white people so they don't look so bad. And then, you know, then you start talking about, well, there we go talking about white men again. It's always y'all. Like, it's literally always y'all. Mm-hmm. 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 Except you. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, well, <laughs> no, well, I, so, I, I mean, I think, and that's an interesting, um, yeah, I, and I got to tell you, I, it, it, it's funny because it's exactly as you said, the way that white men are raised um, we, this is where the violence is. Like the, I don't, I don't know how women and black folk haven't burned everything down, you know, frankly, <laughs> you know? um, and, and, and part of that's just my own, my own violent nature, but it's, it is the, um, it, it's mind boggling. I can't imagine the repeated trauma of of having myself of seeing myself of seeing my family in this position of of you know we talk about empathy and identifying it is um it is traumatic and i know that word has become more more used these days and i think it is entirely appropriate and um it's 
it's something that we have to deal with as humanity. Right. Like this is, this is traumatic. Even if you think you're not being affected by it, you're being affected by it. I agree. Anyway. I agree. Well, man, look, it was good seeing you twice in the same day. <laughs> yes. Yes. Good seeing you too. And, and happy mother's day, uh, to anyone listening and, to, um, you know, folks who, folks who have been mothers and mother figures and parent figures. Um, you know, it's a lot of work raising, raising kids and, uh, fulfilling gender roles and being socialized <laughs> in our screwed up patriarchy racist system. So. Yeah. yeah it, it is more than a notion. Well, man, listen, uh, thank you again for sharing your time with us. And, uh, I'm sure we'll talk sometime this week. Probably so. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Dave. All right, take care, buddy. All right. <laughs>